Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I am so excited to bring you this episode that I just recorded with Pastor Skip Heitzig. First, I want to tell you a little bit about Pastor Skip, if you're not familiar with him. He's a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, one of my absolute favorite Bible teachers. I listen to his Bible teachings all the time. I love that on his app, uh, which we will link for you. Uh, he has teaching on just about every passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. So if you're wanting to study a particular book, you can go check out what Skip had had taught about it, sermons going all the way back into the 90s. Um, I just absolutely love Pastor Skip. I've, I've had the privilege of visiting his church and getting to meet him. And so I just, I just can't recommend his ministry enough to you. But I love in this episode how he shared his story of coming to Christ uh, kind of during the Jesus movement. He had been experimenting with things like astral projection and automatic writing, very occult stuff, and then heard Billy Graham preach the Bible on the TV, committed his life to Christ, and then God called him into a ministry of teaching the Bible. There are so many highlights from today's episode. Um, He talked about misunderstandings and misconceptions people have about the Bible, the timelessness of the Bible. Uh, He talked about trends that people are using, you know, trends about the Bible that are very concerning to him right now. He told us some pitfalls to avoid if you're wanting to study the Bible. But he also gave a lot of really great practical information, like what are some tips for anyone who wants to study the Bible for themselves? Um, He talked about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they connect to one another, and answering the question, is God different in the Old Testament than he is in the New? This just is such a jam-packed, rich, rich episode all about the Bible, and I'm so excited to bring this to you. So without any further ado, here's Pastor Skip Heitzig. Well, Pastor Skip, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. I don't know if you know this or not, but when I'm out traveling, and especially this past October, I had a lot of traveling 
throughout that month. And I would listen to your Bible teachings just about every day. And I kind of felt like I was being spoon fed because I was tired. And, you know, it's like I, I wasn't maybe pulling out my big concordance and my Logos Bible software like I should be, but I could put you in my ears and go on my walk and stay in the Word. So thank you for that, for spoon feeding me while I was traveling. I'm thrilled you're here. I'm honored to be here, and I'm honored to um, have any kind of an association with you because I'm very impressed with what the Lord is doing through you. You're writing, oh. you're speaking. We had the opportunity to host you at this church, and I'll tell you what, we're still talking about it. So oh. can't wait to get you back. Oh, wow. Well, I'm incredibly humbled and honored to hear that. Thank you for that. I would love to introduce my audience to you who may not know uh, who you are and what you do. So tell us a little bit about maybe your story, how you came to Christ and and what you're doing today uh, in ministry and Bible teaching. Well, I'll give you the shorter version. You can dig in anywhere you'd like to if you want more information. But I was raised in Southern California. I was raised Roman Catholic, went to Catholic school, on my early years, my parents insisted on that. And my brother went to seminary, both of them, to become priests. They did not become priests. Uh, they just they stopped short of their ordination. Um, I had an aunt who was a mother superior in a convent. And so I, I'm steeped in, I was steeped in Catholic theology. So that was my background. I was also uh, living in the time um, in the 60s. Uh, though I was quite young. I mean, I was born in 1955. So in the 60s, I watched my brothers kind of get into the hippie thing. And I was a wannabe hippie. Um, but I did experiment with lots of things, and including drugs, including spiritism, astral projection, spirit writing, auto-hypnosis. And they were very powerful experiences. Well, about that time when I was experimenting with that, the Jesus movement was happening down the street in Costa Mesa, California. And um, groups like Love Song that your father was in and others had this music that got my attention. And I remember thinking while I was dabbling in all of this occultic behavior that I could be wrong. And if there's this much power on the wrong side, how much power must there be if I got this right? on the right side. And so that got me thinking. And it was 1973 that I left Southern California, went up to San Jose, Northern uh, California, where my brother lived, lived with him in an apartment, he and his um, wife. And I was working and I was going to go to college there. And one summer afternoon, I turned on television and Billy Graham was on. I was all alone. It was just Billy Graham preaching and me. And I went to the refrigerator. I was 18, so I went, uh, I went to the refrigerator and got a beer. And that's an interesting combination, beer and Billy Graham. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sat there and I listened. And what's interesting about Billy Graham is my father, though staunchly Roman Catholic, said, you should listen to Billy Graham because Billy Graham communicates extraordinarily well. And if you want to learn how to communicate, watch what he has to offer. And so I did. And as I did, I got convicted. Wow. And by the end of the program, I thought if I was in the stadium, I would do what these people I see are doing. He coming down from the seats onto the field to pray the sinner's prayer. And I just thought immediately as I saw them come down, I said, boy, it's a good thing I'm behind this TV and I don't have to do that. 
As soon as I thought that, Elisa, Billy Graham turns to the television. He did this at all his altar calls. Said, if you're watching about television, you can know Christ. And, you know, he just sort of led the audience uh, on television uh, into a prayer. Well, I immediately turned it off and I went into my bedroom and prayed and just had a simple, I didn't know how to pray except for kind of rote, routine, memorized prayers. But I remember just simply talking to God and saying, Something like, I don't know why you want my life. That's what I heard him say. What I have to offer you is nothing, but what you have to offer me is a lot. And so mm. you're not getting a good deal, but I'm getting a great deal. So I surrender. I quit. Wow. And I felt something. I didn't see anything, but I felt unburdened. Mm. I felt lighter. I felt um, complete. Uh, you know, it was really inexplicable at that time, but I knew what I did was right. And I also knew I needed to go back down to Southern Cal because that's where that Calvary chapel was. And I need, I needed to be around those people because I had seen them and been around them and was in the tent and saw the ex excitement they had. So I went back down in the summer of 1973 and got plugged into some of the communes, the house ministries. And that was my early discipleship foundation. Wow. That, that is an amazing story. And I'm curious about your powerful experiences that you had with astral projection and some of these other things. Um, so, so even as a non-Christian, you, you knew there was evil. You knew there was power that was maybe beyond the physical realm. Um, is, that, is that what you think was going on when you were doing some of these experiences? Was, was it demonically fueled? Or what, how do you process that now as a Christian? No doubt it was demonically fueled. And all I knew back then is it was exciting mm. and I was getting information. And, you know, I, I, when, when I was getting into astral projection um, and I, and I kind of was in this meditative state and I concentrated on my soul, leaving my body and going to another place, I, I did a little experiments, you know, a little empiricism uh, kind of mm -hmm. kicked in. I said to a friend of mine who got me into this, his name was Gino Geraci. I said, Gino, how about if I astral project and you astral project and we'll go down to Mossetlawn, down to that hotel that we had our high school retreat in, and let's meet in the lobby and let's compare experiences afterwards just to see if this thing's a hoax or real. Well, what's interesting is when we got on the phone afterwards, we saw the same people the same experiences. We could identify what color of clothing they were wearing, what they did in that room, where they went, etc. cetera. Uh, and I did this again with uh, a girl that I was in class with who didn't believe this. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll astral project into your bedroom this week or into your home. And I'll tell you what your room looks like and, and what I saw. And the next week when I described what had happened and she described an experience that had happened during that moment, uh, she wanted nothing to do with me. She was scared. She saw mm. this is there's something weird about this. Yeah. And for me, again, it was just experimental. It, it wasn't this cognizant good versus evil as much as, hey, this is cool. This works. This, this, you know, I don't get this in church. I don't get this in anything I was raised with. I've never had these kind of expressions or experiences. So um, now when I look back on it, no doubt, I know it's demonic. And I'll tell you, 
what, what really caused me to turn. I was in Mazatlan, Mexico, and I started practicing spirit writing, where I, I was invoking um, the spirits to control me and to tell me uh, about my past lives, uh, you know, this whole past life regression idea, uh, which is part and parcel of that. So I, I suddenly had my guitar turned over, so I had the back facing me and a piece of paper, and I got a pencil, and I just kind of went into a trance and started moving my hand and writing. It made no sense. It was scribble. But eventually, I started writing things out. And I was with a friend who was watching this. And there was a message. And when I came out of that little trance, the message was that I had lived before in the Franco-Prussian War. I was killed in that war. And the details were given. And that I should not ride the train from Mexico back to California because I would get killed on that train. So when I came out of that and read that, the result was morbid fear. Mm. And now I look back and I, I, can, I know it's demonic because God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. And I was yeah. in perpetual fear, so much so that I went to my Spanish teacher and said, I'm not going back with you on the train. Well, then he said, well, why not? Well, I couldn't tell him what had just happened because he wouldn't believe it. So I just said, I, I, I can't go. I'm just, mm. I'm not going. I got to go back another way. I'll take a bus or something else. Mm. I did go back on the train. I did, of course, survive. But I was living for months with just this oppressive fear in my life. And that's when I started thinking, if there's this much power on the wrong side, there must be more power on the right side. Enter Billy Graham, enter the salvation experience, and and then discipleship. Well, that that answers my my next question because I was going to ask you, you know, with the astral projection and all of those experiences, that would be enough to hook a lot of people into staying in that kind of a thing. But it seems like maybe the morbid fear and that that oppression, that tangible oppression that you could feel, was what made the light of what Billy Graham was saying so so powerful. Because uh, that was my question: is what what was it about Christianity that seemed to be uh, so much more powerful and and could end that fear? I mean, you you kind of knew that, didn't you? Yeah, I did, but. So that summer, um, I was alone, um, except for living in my brother's apartment. But I, I was kind of, I was looking for a job, looking for a new life. This was a whole new area that I had moved to. I was on my motorcycle, just sort of me and my motorcycle in the Bay Area. And I was having a great time, but I was very bored. And I went and signed up at, um, at Cal State San Jose. And then I just sort of was sitting around the apartment the rest of the time, kind of thinking of things to do. And when I, when I listened to Billy Graham, there was an authenticity, a simplicity. I, I could tell here's a man who's satisfied. He's done searching. He's much older than me, but still what, what he's saying is rooted in what I have been taught was true. The Bible is true, even though I never read the Bible. But he made God seem so friendly mm. and so approachable and and uh, I suddenly had hope that this is the thing to do. And I don't know, there's been times in my life where I just know deep inside, yeah, that's right. That's true. And, and that, was the, that was the seminal moment for me. Yeah. 
Well, what brought you from that into being interested in teaching the Bible? Obviously, you got connected at Calvary Chapel, so you're going to be under the teaching of Chuck Smith, going through the Bible. And um, what did that process look like for you and that would lead you into pastoring your own church? Well, I hope you're getting a lot out of this conversation with Skip Heitzig. I want to take a moment and tell you about our first sponsor of the day, and that is Good Ranchers, American meat delivered right to your door. You all know how much I love Good Ranchers. I love the quality. I love that they're run by Christians, but also I just love the convenience of having all of this amazing high-quality meat ready to go in my freezer. So we recently had a new grandbaby just after Thanksgiving and have had so much fun getting to know our new little grandson. And so one of the things we love to to do is to bring a meal over to my stepdaughter and my son-in-love just to help them out as they're kind of going into this new phase of their parenting life. And one of the things I got to do recently, I didn't even have to think about it. I just went to the freezer, pulled out some beautiful Good Ranchers T-bone steaks that I had in there, cooked those up, and it was so easy. And I was able to provide a meal for them that they appreciated and loved as well. So if you want that convenience, if you want to know that the meat that you're eating is high quality, no antibiotics, no hormones, American-raised and harvested go to GoodRanchers.com today and use my code ALISA for a discount. Go to GoodRanchers.com, use my code ALISA for a discount. Uh, Chuck had a younger brother uh, named Paul Smith. He was about a year and a half younger than him. Uh, he also was involved in ministry and uh, I was uh, you know, living down in San Bernardino County in Orange County, California, and Paul Smith said, hey, I have a church up here on the high desert, and I'm not going to be there Sunday night. Would you fill in for me? And I'm thinking, Phil, why would you have me fill in for you? I, I'm nobody. But he knew me. I was involved in the commune that he was associated with, the Calvary Chapel House Ministry. And... So obviously he just looked at my life and, and was willing to take a risk. And so uh, he asked me to teach uh, on a Sunday night. I was so nervous. At least I prepared all week long for, for Jonah chapter one to teach Jonah, because it was a short book. I thought I can, I can go into this narrative. It's pretty safe. Everybody knows the story and I can talk about running from God. And so I prepared, I nervously got up. I started my Bible study. And I, I just was anticipating it was going to be a flop. Well, to make things worse, not only was I nervous, but halfway through the Bible study, in the, the back door opens, and Paul Smith, Chuck's younger brother, walks in and sits down and listens to me finish out the remainder of the Bible study. Well, now I'm really nervous because he had told me he's going to be out of town. And then he tells me afterwards, well, I was out of town, but I wanted to come back in time just to hear what you had to say. And, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the hammer to drop. Like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Never have mm. you again. What he said was, I think it would be wrong if you stopped at Jonah chapter one. Would you come back next week and finish the book, go to chapter two and then three and four? I, I said, okay. So that was my Barnabas moment. So if mm. Chuck Smith was my Paul the Apostle, then Paul Smith was my Barnabas, who gave me encouragement and just a little bit of a push. So after that, I looked for any opportunities I could find. Uh, I was going through a UCLA program with an internship in radiology, 
at San Bernardino County Medical Center. So I was quite busy in my studies medically. But uh, anytime I had a chance to teach for a friend in a home Bible study, I, I just took it. Mm. And so I started being trained by what I saw and had seen in Pastor Chuck Smith, but then also in just trying it out in little homes. And I got hooked early on. Uh, and I had people come up to me saying, hey, have you ever thought about going into ministry like full time? And I thought, no, I never really have. But uh, thank you. And so just enough of those experiences added up. And eventually I thought, I think I'd like to start a church because I was part of a movement that encouraged young men to go out and take those kind of risks. So yeah. I was sort of primed for it. Well, in listening to a lot of your teachings, especially going back even into the 90s, I, I love to listen to some of those old ones. Um, I noticed that you're, you're, you know, at, throughout your teaching, you'll correct misunderstandings or misconceptions that people have about the Bible or what the Bible even is. Like, what would you say are some of the most common misunderstandings that people have about the Bible? Well, uh, <laughs> there are so many. Uh, one of the misunderstandings um, is that the Bible is some kind of a self-help book, mm. a how-to guide, uh, instead of, you know, you've got narrative, you've got poetry, you've got a, a, a number of different genres of literature um, that convey a message. And uh, people sort of approach it like it's a self-help book. They start out in Genesis and they get through a couple books, maybe, and they quit because it's not what they thought mm. it would be. Uh, another misconception is that the Bible is uh, a myth. That's the biggest misconception. Most people, unbelievers, think it's it's mythical uh, or at best allegorical. And uh, certainly it has poetic figurative language, but it's it's to be taken at face value for the most part, unless otherwise indicated. Um, I would say another misconception is that people think because there are so many different ways to interpret the Bible, that no one can really be certain of what the Bible means, uh, even though we would say that's not right. If you have a per proper hermeneutic and you interpret things according to a system, like you would any other form of literature, you can come up pretty much all the time with the correct interpretation. And then um, lastly, um, sadly, among many professed believers, is the misconception that the Bible is not enough. It's not sufficient, that they need more than what God has revealed. Even though Peter said he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So um, those are some of the big ones that I run up against. You know, I've been on sabbatical for the last month or so, and for some reason I just got really into watching documentaries about cults. And so I, I kind of binged watched several of these different documentaries, and I'm no expert on cults, but one of the things that really stood out to me that's a common thread among all of these cult documentaries that I watch is this concept of new revelation, this idea that, you know, God is speaking directly through somebody with new information, and um, that kind of goes to your final point there, that the Bible is enough, you know, it's sufficient, we don't we don't need uh, somebody to tell us what God is, you know, saying specifically right now. That's a new thing to add to the Bible. And that is the one thing about all these different cults that was uh, in common is somebody would kind of elevate themselves as this sort of person, whatever they might call them. And 
they were the ones that were the mouthpiece of God and everybody else had to obey what they were saying or else you're disobeying God. And that's what I love about the Bible is we have the authoritative standard of God's word by which to measure everything against. Mm. And so I, I love that you said that. I also want to touch on one of the, the points you just made about the interpretation, because I think that is something that so many people in our audience today are being faced with, whether it's on social media or maybe in their personal relationships, where they might be sharing something that the Bible says with a friend. And of course, with the influx of progressivism and other things, they're they're likely to be told, well, that's just your interpretation. You know, that's your, but I interpret it this way. Help our listeners with, how, how might you respond if somebody were to say that to you? Skip, that's just your interpretation. Uh, I would say um, I would what, what if I have time, what I'd like to do is actually open the text that I referred to up and take them through a quick way to interpret it. Let's look at the context. Let's look at the language, the type of word, the nouns, the verbs, the pronouns and the history and and, and take it at face value like you would any ancient document. And, 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 and ask them some questions. So what do you think this word means? And what do you think the context is? And if I have enough time, I'll do that. And usually people say, oh, I never saw it that way. Hmm. Nobody's really taken the time to show me, or I've never really read the Bible. Most people that say that, that well, it's your interpretation. Um, I will often first say, well, what is your interpretation? Hmm. And then how did you arrive at that interpretation? Uh, tell me your hermeneutic. I wouldn't use that term, but tell me how you came up with the idea that it means this. And have you ever considered that Jesus or Paul was talking in this context at that time? And, um, and, and you know, that brings up sort of the issue of people approaching the Bible and saying, well, this is what it means to me. Mm. Nobody has the right to say that or ask that until they first answer the question, what did the Bible mean to them, the original recipients from the original author? Once you come up with that, and there's a way to come up with that by hermeneutical principles, that then you ask what it means to me. Our next sponsor is a company that I love so much. And I would say that over half my closet now is coming from Carly Jean Los Angeles. This is a Los Angeles-based clothing line run by Carly Jean Brannon, mom of four. She's a Christian. I just love this company. I love that the clothes are made for women in all phases of life, whether you are in phases of pregnancy or you are way past, that ship has way past sailed and now it's hard to find clothes that fit in all the right places. This is for you. I have loved finding clothes that just fit me great and look really cute. And, and if you didn't know this, Carly Jean also sells jewelry. They have really nice gold-plated jewelry. In fact, I asked for these earrings for Christmas and my mom got them for me. And I've worn them just a bunch. I just really love them so much. So they have sunglasses. They have different accessories and bags and clothes. So if you want to check them out, go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com and use my code ALISA for 20% off your first order. Again, that's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use my code ALISA for 20% off your first order. Yeah, that's a good point, because I think a lot of Christians maybe conflate um, interpretation with application. Right. They, they sort of think they're, they're the same thing, but they're actually not the same thing. What it means is different than how it's going to apply to your specific situation and in your life. Um, and I love your point about opening a physical Bible, because one of the things that I've learned 
from my research into deconstruction and progressive Christianity is that TikTok is just filled with 20 or 30 second videos where somebody just pulls one, you know, quote unquote, problematic verse out of its context and says, hey, the Bible says this and it's evil and it's this. And, and people watching, you know, have like a million likes on it. But I guarantee you those million people are not opening the physical Bible to look at what's said before the verse and after the verse in its larger cultural context, in its historical context. Um, and, and so, so many people are getting their, their theology from TikTok. They're getting their information about what the Bible does or doesn't say from these really quick little 20-second videos. And I think it was, maybe it was G.K. Chesterton that says, a lie travels halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes, because <laughs> yeah. it takes a minute to unpack some of those things. So I love that idea of just sitting down and opening the actual Bible, because there's a good chance that person really hasn't even done that. Exactly. So the first book I wrote was called How to, How to Study Your Bible and Enjoy It. And I did exactly that. I went through the principles of observation, interpretation, application, but those are just principles. Then the last part of the book was, here is a section of the gospel of Mark. Here's Mark chapter one. Let's put all those principles now to practice, and we'll come up with what it um, what it says, and then what it means. And uh, I, I find that to be, once you get people actually doing that, um, then it changes for them, because you're right, most people are willing to accept a snippet of information and go with that, having never studied themselves. Yeah, right. So when I mentioned earlier that I love to listen to some of your sermons, even going back into the 90s, sometimes I don't even realize that it's from, you know, 1993 or something. And, and it, you, everything just sounds like it's right now for today. There, it's, like, it's like once in a while, it, I'll be jolted by some sort of a cultural reference of something that's, I think you referenced um, some news story. And I was like, oh, this is really old, but I didn't know it was old until you said that. And, and it really strikes me as I, as I listen to, especially those older sermons, how timeless the Bible is. Why do you think that is? And, and I, I sort of, I would just love for you to talk about the timelessness of the Bible, because mm -hmm. I think that is something that could be really appealing to a world that's changing so fast. I mean, think about cancel culture, where everybody feels like they have to check Twitter every five minutes to find out what they're supposed to think, because what everybody thought five minutes ago is going to get you canceled. And if you don't delete it fast enough, then you'll get canceled too. And it's just this kind of hamster wheel mm -hmm. that culture has everybody on. And I feel like understanding the timelessness of the Bible is a beautiful contrast to that. Yeah, um, that's a good, great point. Um, yeah, th the Bible is timeless because it deals with eternal verities. Um, one of God's characteristics is he is immutable. He doesn't change. He declares that. It is, uh, it is it, um, almost taken for granted by the biblical authors that God is sort of the reference point, the North Star. Um, so a lot of things do change. Time changes. Uh, cultures change, technology changes, but God himself doesn't change. And humanity basically doesn't change. We have the same problem, we have the same needs, the same sin problem, and the same solution uh, is uh, given to one as given to another. Um, I had a, you, you spoke about other revelations. Um, I had a Mormon in my office because, interesting, there was a period of time where I noticed that about three or four Mormon missionaries were sitting in the front row of church, our church, every Sunday in their white shirts and ties. And I just thought, well, that's odd. But then I figured, I think I know why they're here. 
And then I went up to him and I said, I'd love to meet with you. And they said, oh, we'd love to meet with you. And so they were trying to convince me in that meeting that they have another revelation besides the Bible. And I quickly brought out Jude chapter one and did the interpretation thing. I said, let's read Jude one, mm. um, um, two and three, those verses that, you know, he said, I, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I wrote to you to put up a good fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I forced them to give me the accurate interpretation of once for all time delivered to the saints, which now precludes any extra revelation besides the revelation of the New Testament. And, um, you know, that verse kind of plays right into the timelessness of the Scripture. Um, God knows what we need, has provided what we need, and all that we need, uh, as Peter said, for life and godliness is found in the knowledge of him who called us. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure as you've taught the Bible over the course of decades, you've noticed trends in the way people approach the Bible that you might feel the need to correct or that, you know, trends that concern you. Like I think about the rise of a li the liberal theology in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I did a little bit of study on uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who is considered the father of theological liberalism and how he had these doubts and questions, wrote a letter to his dad basically saying, you know, hey, these asking for a friend, you know, the, the, the teachers right. at my school are saying this and some people are kind of, you know, dissuaded by it. And then his dad kind of blows it off and says, oh, you know, I've read all the skeptics. There's nothing there, not realizing that really it was it was his son's question. And really for, for Friedrich Schleiermacher, it was the atonement. Like he couldn't believe in the in the, also the deity of Jesus. It was just like he could not bring himself to believe these things. So he had to approach the Bible in a different way. Of course, he also had uh, the evolutionary theory that Christians were sort of figuring out how to combat. So uh, some, you know, that, that went with the theological liberalism just decided, well, hey, maybe the miracle stories of the Bible didn't really happen. Maybe those are myths. Maybe we can mine some moral truths out of it, but, uh, you know, it's it's not something that we need to take literally. And so that was a big trend in the late 1800s. I'm curious what trends you see now, like is your interaction with parishioners and, and as you teach through the Bible, are there, uh, I know we talked about misconceptions, but there are trends about the way people approach the Bible that kind of can change over time. What would you say are the big ones right now? Do you love coffee? Do you love the pro-life cause? Well, why not put those two passions together and try Seven Weeks Coffee? This is a coffee company run by Christians and more specifically pro-life Christians. In fact, 10% of every purchase goes to pro-life resource pregnancy centers. I just love that. I love knowing that I can get this really high quality, shade grown, better than organic, pesticide-free, mold-free, direct trade, wonderful coffee. And I know that I'm helping the pro-life cause. Why is it called Seven Seven weeks? Well, that's because at seven weeks, the the heartbeat of the baby is first detectable in the womb. And also at seven weeks, the baby is about the size of a coffee bean. So it's a great conversation starter. It's a great gift. If you've got a birthday or some sort of anniversary coming up for the coffee lover in your life, why not send a pound of seven weeks coffee and you know that you're doing good for the pro-life cause and sending amazingly delicious, wonderful coffee. So go to sevenweekscoffee.com and use my code ELISA for 10% off. Again, that's sevenweekscoffee.com. Use my code ELISA for 10% off. 
Well, uh, I preface that, but what, what I'm going to say by saying you mentioned all these, uh, you know, uh, when liberalism started and the introduction into the church theologically, I think there are trends, but I think the trends are ba- basically repackaged mm. lies. It's the same old liberalism in new clothes. Uh, there's nothing much different except in sort of a modern twist, whether it's postmodernism, whether it's the emergent church, whether it's deconstructionism, it's basically the same idea. It starts out with the same premise and moves sort of in the same general direction. But one of the disturbing trends that I see because I'm a pastor is it seems to me that many pastors emphasize style over substance. Mm. It's methodology over message. You know, am I saying something in a way that is a, has a wow factor to it? So the church becomes almost a pep rally than uh, in something that gives biblical foundational instruction that helps people live and change. And um, it's almost, instead of for some, and I'm not going to name names in particular uh, right now, but that it's not exegesis, it's narcissus. It's mm. I'm going to say something in a way that makes me look really good, as if we can come up with something better than what God has already said. That's a, that's a theological arrogance. Uh, when, when a preacher thinks that he can make God um, or, or say something better than God has said, uh, is, is, is arrogant. So I see that as a trend, and mm. to me that's disturbing. Uh, the other trend I see, part kind of goes with the first one, is that the, it's, you know, the Bible or religion or God, it's all about us. It's self-help. Um, it's, um, it's about me rather than, you know, one thing, the great theme of the Bible is the glory of God and giving glory to God. And if you look at the prayer of Jesus in John 17, from beginning to end, it was all about glorifying the Father. And that was his predominant theme. He had many other sub-themes in that prayer, but that was the dominant theme. And I'm struck by that. And I don't see a whole lot of the fear of God and the glory of God. I I hear a lot about, um, you know, 10 ways to have a better you or or something very, very surfacy. And, mm. and, uh, and that's disturbing. Yeah, that is such a great point because I think it speaks to how people in our culture generally approach the subject of religion to begin with. It seems like people aren't really approaching religion like, I want to find out what is true. Does God exist? Who is he? How has he revealed himself? Can I have relationship with him? How does this all work? It doesn't seem like those are the questions people are asking today, but they're really asking questions of like, what quote unquote works for me? It's like a very pragmatic approach. And I think that's influenced by postmodernism where people would say, hey, you know, when it comes to religion and morality, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And that's because truth has become relativized and religion has become pragmatic. So that's why um, I always tell people, it's like, you all know people like this on your social media who they'll post a Bible verse one day and you're like, oh, they're Christian. This is so cool. And then the next day they quote Buddha. And then the next day it's like some crystals. And then it's some positive affirmations and then a photo of them meditating the next day. And you're like, seems like they're just sort of cobbling together a bunch of stuff that just seems to quote unquote work for them. Right. Uh, it's like a spiritual smorgasbord, right? I'll yeah. take a help of, of new age and a little Bible verse and just put it all together because it's all the same. And a lot of that is the weakness of the pulpit, uh, Elisa. I think that 
there is a high degree of subjectivity in postmodernism. It's uh, what, you know, this whole thing, what does it mean to me? And, and so the, the common hermeneutic and homiletic that pastors get into the pulpit with is they quote a verse uh, to begin with, they depart from that verse, and they never return to that verse. They just use that as a diving board to say something that they want to say. And they just think that they'll give them a little more authority by starting with that. Mm. And, and, and that is the result of a postmodern thinking. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, in the theme of sort of helping uh, our audience to understand maybe misconceptions about the Bible, trends, how to approach the Bible, what the Bible even is, I think it's it's necessary to talk about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because I have found, especially dealing with progressive Christianity, that misunderstandings about what the Old Testament is and the New Testament, what they're all about and how they're connected, are, um, whether it's willful or out of ignorance— bad theology comes out of not understanding that relationship. And one example would be the progressive push to uh, become LGBTQ plus inclusive. And one of the points they'll say is, well, hey, do you wear mixed fabrics in your clothes? Do you eat shellfish? If you do these things, then you, um, you, you know, if you do that, you're breaking God's word too. And so it's a bait and switch to try to get people to be confused about the relationship between the old and the new. So just, I know that's a huge question, but if mm. you had a brand new Christian in front of you, like, how do I relate the Old Testament with the New Testament? What would be your kind of base level answer for that? I'd first say um, you have to understand that for the New Testament authors uh, or New Testament people, including Jesus, the Bible that they quoted was the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament yet. So um, it's foundational. Judeo-Christian thinking, uh, the reason that's placed together is because the idea that we believe is that Revelation is progressive uh, um, in the sense that the foundation for the New Testament is the Old Testament revelation, still the Word of God. Sure, there are principles that don't apply, like mixed fabric. So all you have to do is take like the Ten Commandments, and you notice that all of the commandments in the Ten Commandments are also mentioned in the New Testament, except for the Sabbath. The Christian is not commanded to keep the Sabbath per se, because that was something that was part of the covenant that God made with the children of Israel. So um, you know, Paul said that we have the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the prophets formed the foundation for the apostles. The apostles provided the doctrine that is flushed out in the New Testament, but one is built upon the other. And so when you open up the New Testament and you begin with the Gospel of Matthew, a word that Matthew uses quite a lot is the word fulfilled that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken. And so the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or paraphrases the Old Testament and brings the truth of the old into the new. This is why Augustine said um, that famous little um, axiom, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. That is, the Old Testament uh, or the New Testament is anticipated in the Old Testament, the Old Testament anticipates the New, and then you get to the New Testament and you find out that uh, all the predictions and prophecies are now fulfilled uh, in the New Testament. So you can't have one without the other. One provides the foundation. And um, I heard John MacArthur once say 
uh, I think it was to Ben Shapiro in that podcast. He said, were it not for the Old Testament, I don't think I would believe in Jesus. And that's because I read all of these preconditions and prophetic utterances, some 300, and then I realized Jesus fulfilled them. But that is the case study uh, that is given, where you have all of these predictions, and so what? You have all these promises, but now you find that they're fulfilled in this manner. That makes a very strong case. Mm, so, that's good. So um, yeah. I think that's why when Jesus rose from the dead and he had the encounter with the men on the road to Emmaus, the unnamed disciples, it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he spoke to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And... Um, so, you know, they rely heavily on, on those foundational documents. Yeah, that's good. There's an ancient heresy called Marcionism where uh, Marcion taught that there were two different gods. Like there was there was one deity that was the Old Testament God and another deity that was the New Testament God. And um, it's almost like that heresy has been given new life where progressive Christians probably wouldn't go so far to say it's two different gods. But, well, some do actually. Some, some actually do make that case. But... I think that's a great misunderstanding, too. And and that one actually, Pastor Skip, puzzles me because I, I've read the whole Bible. In fact, I read almost the whole Bible by the time I was 12 years old. And I never on my own would have come to the conclusion that God behaves differently. Now, there are there is, of course, different um, sides of him that you see old and new. But I see the severity of Jesus. I see the mercy of, you know, the Old, old Testament portrayal of Yahweh. Um, speak to that, because I think that's something that um, that Marcionism is kind of getting new life today. And a lot of people, I, again, because they're just seeing these 20 or 30 second TikTok videos and they're not really engaging all of scripture for themselves, might be under the impression that God is portrayed very differently in the Old Testament than he is in the New. How, how would you answer that? Well, first of all, you said something that is, is uh, quite um, important. You said, I've read through the whole Bible and never found what they say they found. That's because they didn't find it. You read through the whole Bible. They didn't. I guarantee you, if they did what you did, they would have a different uh, conclusion. And so you, you had on something very important. If you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, certainly there's different emphases in both Testaments, but the essence is identical. Because you can go to Exodus 34, and God says, I'm compassionate and long-suffering and, and merciful. And then you come to the New Testament, you find Jesus judging the whole earth, a sword yeah. coming from his mouth. And you talk about severe judgment or the woe of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and you think Jesus is gentle and meek and mild. Well, what about that day? Uh, you know, he wasn't quite so um, standoffish. So you can see both compassion and mercy in the Old and New Testament. You can find judgment in both the Old and the New Testament. The essence of God is the same. The emphasis is a bit different. The Old Testament does lean on the side of justice of God, which is an attribute, but the mercy and compassion that the Old Testament also says God is, is greatly manifested more so in the New Testament because of the person of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I was, I, was with, um, I was with Benjamin Netanyahu, a couple of years ago in his office and in, in, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he brought up Jesus. We had about an hour conversation. He brought up Jesus, his father and grandfather were scholars. And 
he wanted to talk a little bit about Jesus. And he said, um, when I read the New Testament, Jesus was the greatest example of, and he paused and he turned to his aide and he said in Hebrew, chesed. And I knew that word means loving kindness. And so I said, loving kindness. And he goes, yes, Jesus Christ is the most palpable, notable example of loving kindness that we have ever had in this nation. I thought that was quite a statement. And so he kind of grasped the essence of the New Testament, that the emphasis of the new doesn't preclude the old, but the emphasis of the new is the kindness and loving kindness and willingness to forgive. Also, another notable difference between Old and New Testament is you have Old Testament sacrifices that were temporary. The New Testament introduces a single sacrifice on a cross by Jesus once for all time. Hebrews chapter 1, God who in different ways and different times spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to us once and for all by his Son. And so the big difference is a temporary set of sacrifices, a permanent sacrifice that is good for all time and eternity. I would imagine as you teach through the Bible, there are some books you approach and you're like, oh, I got to teach that book. But then there's others where you get excited and you're like, I love teaching through this book. Do you have a favorite book of the Bible to study and teach from? This is hard um, because I will often change what I think is my favorite, depending on what I'm teaching. Go, oh, man, I love this is my favorite book. And then uh, I'll go to another book and I'll say the same thing. And so that's a very difficult. I, I've come to find that uh, there, there are certain books I gravitate toward. I love the book of Hosea. I like the idea of a second chance and uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, but when I did a commentary on the book of Genesis and I did a commentary in the book of Revelation, um, I fell in love with those books. So, so you know, I'm not going to be able to give you what is my favorite single book because, you know, I'm always in one book and then the next and then the next and then the next. So um, I pr I, I'll tell you my life verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where God says, where Paul said, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I live by that. <laughs> yes. I've seen that over again in my life. So. Um, that's yeah. probably my favorite passage. That's good. I, I imagine people are watching this or listening to this, and it's a new year, and everybody's making their resolutions, you know, going to get back in the Word. Maybe somebody's never really tackled reading and studying the Bible for themselves. What advice would you give somebody who wants to study the Bible for themselves? If they've never read the Bible, I would first say, begin in the New Testament. Um I would begin with one of the Gospels. For me, I had a little book called Good News for Modern Man. It was a paraphrased uh, translation. I think it was the Living Bible. And I went through Matthew, and then I think I went through the book of Acts or John or whatever. But um, I would probably begin with a New Testament book. Uh, I would get a Gospel down first before I tackle things in the Old Testament. And then I would probably read Acts uh, and then Romans in, in a very easy-to-understand translation. Then I would go back and tackle it. So, you know, if, if that's for the first time. If somebody's looking for a method to go through the Scriptures, there's a hundred different methods you can get from any website, including the Bible app. Uh, one thing that I like to do is divide up my reading by days of the week. So, um, Sunday, you read whatever your church is going through. 
um, and meditate on that personally, privately, not just from the sermon, but you just read through that chapter. Then on Monday, I like to take the Torah, the, the legal books, um, you know, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then on Tuesday, the historical books, and then the poetical books, and then, um, uh, you know, go into the New Testament and uh, the Gospels. And so I do that. I do a section of that. That's what I'm currently doing uh, every day of the week. So it it kind of mixes things up a little bit. I'm not in Second Chronicles for like a month or two. Um, I'm dividing it up. And I find that it's helpful to me to do it that way because I'm making connections every time I go through a section. I go, oh, I saw that there. And I, in a couple of days, I read something that harkens back to what I read previously. So that's uh, I got that method from a guy named Roy Gustafson, who was an associate with Billy Graham. And uh, he came up with that idea. And I thought, that's a good system. I'm going to try that. Yeah, I like that that you do that even from the pulpit. You you'll teach through Old Testament, and then you'll or you know book of the Old Testament, and then you'll do a book in the New, and then back to the Old, and kind of keeping that um, change up for people. I think is is helpful because it, it like you said it mixes it up, and then you can kind of make those connections as you go. What are some pitfalls you would tell people to avoid uh, when studying the Bible? Uh, don't get bogged down on things you don't understand, and don't think that you have to finish a chapter or two if that's your goal. Uh, uh, all at once. So um, when I say bogged down, it's very easy for me to get distracted. My wife says I have, I'm a classic ADHD type of personality. So I'll go through something. I go, oh, I got to find out if that town is still even in existence. And I want to Google to find out where's the remains of that, the archaeological ruins. Next time I'm in Israel, I'm going to go there. And, and it's like, I, I've just covered one verse. I didn't have to do that. So uh, I might then make a note. Now, now, that's my practice. I'll make a little note, ref- go back to it later, and then kind of make my way through the passage. Um, but if it starts really speaking to me on a personal level, uh, don't worry about finishing the chapter. Just finish that encounter, that thought that the Holy Spirit is giving you, and get back to it later. Um, then I-, I would reverse that and say, um, there is something to be said for reading the Bible in a quick amount of time. So I did a 45-day challenge of reading through the whole Bible in 45 days. And it was a yeoman's job to do that, you know, to do it that fast, because my tendency is to get bogged down. But I just said, nope, I'm just going to get an overview this time. I'm going to read through those chapters. And I found that to be very helpful. It gave me the umbrella viewpoint, the, the, uh, 30,000 foot yeah. viewpoint. And that yeah. was helpful. And, and I, so, so you can't go wrong. Um, I have a little book by Wilbur Smith called profitable Bible studies put out probably in the forties, but he talks about the difference between reading a whole book or a whole Testament, and then going down to a book, down to a, down to a chapter, to a paragraph, to a sentence, to studying words and the profitability of all of those methods, but not getting hung up on any of them. Yeah, that's really good. I, I appreciate that advice. I, I think it was Tara Lee Cobble that said, you know, read the whole Bible, get it in your bones before you start digging in and, like you say, getting bogged down, because there are going to be things you read in Leviticus that you won't even understand until you get to Hebrews. And so, you know, get it in your bones. That's good. All right, I've got a, I've got what I think is a very hard question for you. Um 
because I think this would be hard for me to do this, but if you could try and explain the overarching narrative of the Bible in about hmm. 60 seconds, do you think you can do that? I would say the Bible is essentially about one person and two events. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, God's promised Messiah, the Deliverer. It's about two events, his first coming, his second coming. His first coming to redeem people from their sin, his second coming to rule and reign with those who have been redeemed from their sin. Very good. You were up to the challenge. That's <laughs> that's a good job. Two people. I mean, one, one person, two events. Very good. Well, let our audience know how they can connect with your podcast and uh, to access your Bible teachings and anything else you want to promote uh, that you've been working on. Well, um, we, um, okay, so the website we have is skipheitzig.com. That can get all of the resources, all of the Bible teaching free of charge. You can listen to or watch um, uh, just about any sermon or study from any section of Scripture. Um, we have our church, uh, calvarynm.church, uh, Calvary, New Mexico. Calvarynm.church is the church website. Um, I am working on a book. I just did a study guide on end times theology, kind of an in-depth eschatological overview. And then I just am finishing a book. It's in print now, a little booklet. It's only about 100 pages on Israel at war. Mm. And because there's so much controversy around Israel's right to exist in the land, the Palestinian conflict, and I kind of go into the history of Hamas and Hezbollah and, and just formulate it in a little booklet that'll be out within the next week or so. Very good. Well, I want to thank my guest, Pastor Skip Heitzig. And I do want to just say that, um, Pastor Skip, go back into his uh, archives on his podcast. Some of the sermons that he preached right around the time of the attack on Israel were very helpful to me in navigating all of that that was going on. So I really re recommend those to you guys. Also want to recommend you go to ses.edu, that's Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I will forever be a student, whether I'm auditing or taking for credit. I love SES. Go to ses.edu slash Alisa. You can download a free ebook there. Check out what they have to offer. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. So pray for me and I will pray for you. No turning right or left will make it through. The road that's narrow and the gate that's small. It's gonna be worth it all. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.